Pastor's been preaching on Revelation. And, you know, I think, I think God is telling us to pay more attention to prophecy, pay more attention to what's going on around us. What was that scripture, the sons of Issachar knew the signs of the times or knew how to read the signs of the times? Well, this morning we're going to do uh, the first of two lessons from Daniel. Actually, you could do about a dozen lessons from Daniel, but uh, I have this week, and then Pastor's going to be back next week, and then the week after that is youth convention. So I'll be preaching the second part of this that week. Uh, Brad won't be here, Noah won't be here, it'll be Kurt's baptism on, under fire. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. Um, I thought it was interesting to look at, take a look at the book of Daniel. I know, you know, everybody knows the story of uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Um, we're not going to get there this week because there's just so much more in Daniel to talk about than that. Um, one of the things I was interested in is, is who was Daniel? Because it, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about him. We all know what happened to the Jewish kingdoms as they sank into idolatry and the prophets warned them what would happen. And this book kind of starts with the Babylonian conquest of Judah and Jerusalem. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem three times. This is the first. Um, and that was around 605 BC. And Daniel 1 verses 1 and 2 say, during the year, third year of King Je Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So as, as was the custom in those days, um, Nebuchadnezzar deported all the intelligentsia or as I like to call them, the smart people uh, of Israel, of, of that, that area, uh, and took them to Babylon. Uh, and among those people were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they were all princes in the tribe of Judah. So that was kind of their background. That was the reason they got taken to Babylon was because they were in the higher, the higher echelon uh, of the country. Daniel 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Now, according to the Jewish Talmud, Daniel was, well, he had an incredible gift of wisdom. And, and they said, the Talmud says that his gift was so great that if it was compared to all the other people of that time, uh, you'd find all the other people lacking. So his, his wisdom would outweigh them all. 
and the other three young men also were of superior intelligence. Now, you got to ask yourself, you know, why did this all happen to the Jews? We, we, we know that they kind of went up and down in their worship of God. They would always get into idol worship. They would get kind of waylaid by people in the lands that they were in, and, and they'd forget about God. And like today, not everyone was faithful or kept God's commandments. And, you know, God had been patient with these people. Uh, he sent the prophets, and the prophets told them for years what was going to happen if they didn't come back to God. So, at the end of all this, God's finally had enough. So he raises up Nebuchadnezzar and brings him against the people of Israel. The thing is, there's always a faithful few that remain in, a la in the land when this happens. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like today. We see, those of us who are Christians see all kinds of stuff going on that, that we just, we, we can't understand how people can't get it that they shouldn't be doing this. But, you know, there's always a remnant. And the Lord has always had a special word in, in his word for these people. In Revelation 2, uh, verse 7, it, he says, Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. In Revelation 3, Verses 4 to 6, he says, Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Now, the four young men that Daniel 1 talks about were part of this remnant. And here they are, they're gonna become part of the royal court. Now, in order to honor the Babylonian idols, all four of them were given names of the king's gods. And Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar. Now, Daniel means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel protect him, or Bel protect his life. And Bel was one of the favorite gods of Nebuchadnezzar, and most scholars kind of equate Bel with Baal, which is you know, one of the gods spoken often about in, uh, in Scripture as one of, the, one of the gods that God with a capital G hated. Now, the men were to be trained, or as I like to call it, they were supposed to be brainwashed. They were to be trained for three years prior to their service, and the purpose was to transform them from Jews into Babylonians. Now, we all know how that works. You know, you kind of inundate somebody with everything from your culture and try and convince them that your culture is better than their culture. Now, these four young men didn't have a problem learning about the religion the science, the language, the history, or the customs of the Babylonian, but they did have a problem 
when those customs require them to disobey God's law. And, and the one thing that is brought out in that, in that first chapter of Daniel is about the food. And the king's food was probably the best in the land, and these trainees, let's call them trainees, were required to eat it. The problem was, not only would it defile them and make them ceremonially unclean, but it was food that had been offered to idol because, idols because all of the king's food was offered to his idols before he ate it or before anyone ate it. So these four young men had to figure out how to resist that. And I think it's an important example of, of how they did it, especially in light of what's going on in the world today. Daniel 1 verse 8 says, But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. So obviously Daniel had made his decision, I'm not going to do this. And so had his three friends. So they weren't going to conform to something that would violate their law. In Romans, Paul puts it like this. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, now what are conformers? What are people who conform? Go along with the crowd, right? They're, they're people who are controlled by the pressures from without, right? How many of you have been in management of some kind before? What, what are you taught in management? You're supposed to do what? You're supposed to transform your area into something that is better than what it was. I always ask myself when I, when I sat and listened to those lectures about, well, how good can you get? You know, you reach a point where, you know, you can't get any better. What's that? The Peter principle, right? Everybody rises to their level of incompetence. Yes, it is a principle, and yes, it is a book, and a guy wrote, wrote the book, and he made a whole lot of money on it. So, But <laughs> Daniel obviously wanted to be or was a transformer, and a transformer are people whose lives are controlled by a power from within. And in our case, that's what? The Holy Spirit, right? That's the power we're supposed to have inside of us. Now, this requires you to be wholly committed to the Lord. So when these four young men had to make a choice, they chose the word of God. Psalm 119, 103 and 104 says, How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. That's strong words. I hate every false way of life. And that's, that's kind of what Daniel and these other three young men were, were looking at. So they chose to trust God with their choice. Now, how to do that? You know, do they, you want to carry a sign and protest? You want to burn down half a city or whatever, whatever you want to do to pro protest? But 
that's not what they decided to do. They decided to be gracious. Now they noticed that Aspenaz was kind to them and they, they took that as God working in him to, you know, to help them. So they asked for this experiment. Daniel 1 verse 12 to 16 says, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion, suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but I like a good steak. So I'm, you know, I, this kind of this bothers me, but this is, this is God's word. Throughout scripture, you're going to find people of courage who had to defy the authority in order to honor God. And they always, without exception, if you, if you read, read through the Bible, without exception, they chose to be wise and gentle about it. Now, yeah, there are times when you can be wise and gentle up to here, and then you just have to slap someone silly, right? But this wasn't one of them. But if you look at the way most Christians handled things throughout Scripture and the way Daniel and his friends handled things, they, they took that wise and gentle approach. Romans 12:18 says, Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Now, I, I like the way the NIV says it better. It says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So that, that kind of acknowledges the fact that, that I can be a peaceful person, but I may not be able to convince the other party to be peaceful about it. And I, and I have to do something about it. When we look at this, and I'm going to call it the first lesson from Daniel, we see kind of a format for facing a problem. He asked God for courage and he faced it with humility. He asked God for the wisdom to understand it, he asked God for the strength to do what he tells us to do, and he asked God for the faith to trust him to do the rest. It wasn't a matter of how could he get out of this, it was more of a matter of what can he get out of it? In other words, what can I get out of this, not how can I get out of it? Daniel wanted to stand for something. He wanted his convictions to mean something, and he knew that if he stood for it, God would honor that. Daniel 1, 15 and 16 says, At the end of the ten days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthy and better nursed than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for others. Now, it's amazing, isn't it, that when you ask somebody to try something and they try it and it works, all of, all of a sudden, more of the things that you say make sense to them, right? It's kind of like when you, uh, when you go out and you witness to somebody and at some point in their life they get saved all those things that you said to them that may not have made any sense at all to them when you said them suddenly make sense to them. What does Pastor Jeff say? The light bulb goes on and you understand it. 
Now, at the end of their instruction, they were interviewed by the king. Daniel 1, verses 19 and 21 says, The king talked with them, and no one impressed them as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered this royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and the enchanters in his entire kingdom. And then verse 21 says, Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. And we'll kind of get to that later, but it's in there. Now, let's move on to the second lesson. Nebuchadnezzar was in the second year of his reign. Now, now think about this. This king had conquered most of Judah, and he was only king for, this was only in the first two years. So God, when God says he rose up Nebuchadnezzar to come against Judah, you know, God really gave him some capability to do it. Um, but he was worried about this kingdom. He kept having a disturbing, recurrent dream. So he kept, you know, in looking at the research for this, a lot of the scholars say it wasn't just a dream, it was the same dream over and over and over again, and he couldn't get rid of it. And if you remember Shakespeare's line, and I'm sure some of you had this drilled into you in school, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. You remember that? Or as I like to put it, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Nebuchadnezzar did what any king at that time would do. He called all the magicians, all the astrologers, all the sorcerers, and all the Chaldeans, which Chaldeans are Babylonians, so I'm not, it, it fits in a little bit later, but not here, uh, and asked for their interpretation. Now, somehow, he forgot Daniel and his three friends. I, nobody knows why. Some people say, well, they had just entered into service, so maybe they weren't, you know, maybe they weren't called to ask about this, or maybe they were off doing something else, but Scripture doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us why. The really interesting thing here is that the king wanted an interpretation from, the, from his counselors, but he refused to tell them what the dream was. Now think about that. <laughs> You know, and, and I, know there, I know there's astrologers and palm readers and all that kind of stuff out there today that will interpret a dream for you. Think what would happen if you went to them and said, hey, I had this dream. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I want you to interpret it for me. Yeah, that's, that's kind of tough. Um, obviously, they were used to having someone tell them what the dream was, and then they would either make something up or they would, whatever they did, and tell them what the dream was. Their response to him kind of amounts to me telling you that you're half a bubble off. And the king reacted just like you would if I told you that. Daniel 2, verses 10 to 13, it says, The astrologers replied to the king, No one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. 
Now, now that's kind of the neat thing about being a king in this time. You get mad at people just off them. Yeah. Yeah, you, don't have, you don't have anybody to deal with then, you know. It's, it's amazing. But, you know, can you imagine... All of you went to high school, I'm sure. Did you ever get run into the situation where the, where the principal says those wonderful words, well, if nobody's going to stand up and take responsibility for this, I'm going to punish everybody. Yeah, I've been there. Have you ever had that happen and not even been around or in the building when it happened? And yet there you are. Can you imagine how Daniel felt? He's, he's over, no, he wasn't involved in this. And all of a sudden, this, the executioner comes up to him and says, hey, I got to kill you. Come with me. So what, is, what does Daniel do? I'm sorry. What does Daniel do? In Daniel 2, verses 14 to 16, he, it says, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. I couldn't do that. I'm sorry. I'd be screaming in panic. But... He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that had happened. Daniel went out at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Now, now that kind of tells us a couple things. First of all, Daniel must have been in pretty high esteem there, even though he was new. Because why would the executioner grant him a, an audience with the king? And why would the king even listen to him? So, Daniel 2, verses 17 and 18 kind of tells us what to do when faced with an insurmountable problem. It says, Then Daniel went home, told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secrets so that they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. So, so what did he do? He went to his friends in our case, family, and ask them to do what? Pray. Yeah. <laughs> Pray like your lives depend on it, guys, because it did. And they did. And it's, it says that God revealed the secret to him that night. And what did Daniel do? Well, Daniel erupts in praise. Daniel 2, verses 20 and 23, it says, He said, Praise the name of God forever and ever. For he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in the darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God, of my ancestors. For you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. So Daniel goes back to Arioch and Arioch takes him to the king and, and Daniel interprets the dream. And we all, know that we all know what that dream was. Nebuchadnezzar had seen this immense metallic statue and he had seen a rock taken out of, a, taken out of the mountain. It says, not by human hands. And the rock dashed the statue into atoms. So it blew it, blew it to smithereens. Now, Daniel used his God-given wisdom to ask for more time. Then he prayed. 
When the prayer was answered, he praised God pretty joyfully, sounds like, from that. And then he went and he gave a faithful interpretation to the king of the dream. So that kind of sounds like something that we could model, right? You know, you're faced with a problem. You go to your church family. You ask for prayer. You pray about it. You get the answer. You praise God for the answer. And then you do what God said. But let, let's dig into this a little bit more. Daniel starts to interpret the dream. In, in verses 36 to uh, 45, he says, that was the dream. He Tells him about the, uh, the statue. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. Now, the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom. And it lasted from 636 B.C. to 539 B.C. So what's that? About 100 years, right? Not really very long as the kingdom goes, but it, last, it lasted 100 years. Jeremiah, in his book, called Babylon a golden cup in the Lord's hand. So hence the head of gold. Verse 39 says, But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. The, the, the chest and arms of silver, silver is the Medo-Persian kingdom, which was from 539 B.C. to 330 B.C. And Darius the Mede was the, was the king who conquered Babylon. And that's what, maybe 200 years says, after that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. Now the belly and thighs are of bronze, and that was the Greeks. And that was from 330 B.C. to 63 B.C., so almost 300 years. Alexander the Great established that, and it was probably the largest empire in ancient times. And he died in 323 B.C., so it, it it lasted him by quite a bit, outlasted him. Verse 40 says, following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. Now, Warren Wiersbe says that the legs and iron and feet of iron and clay is the Roman Empire from 63 BC to 475 AD. Iron represents strength, clay represents weakness. Rome was strong in law, organization, and military might, but the empire included so many different people that this created weakness. Verse 44 goes on, during the reigns of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. 
That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Now, the destruction of the image represented the coming of Christ and the establishment of his universal kingdom. Now, there's, there's some prophecy in there for us as well. It shows how difficult it's going to be to hold things together at the end of this age. Whenever iron touches clay, there's weakness. I don't know if, I don't know if we have any metalsmiths here or not, but you know, when, when, you get, when you get impurities mixed in with iron, it makes it brittle. Society to get, today is held together by treaties that can be broken, promises that can be ignored, traditions that can be forgotten, and organizations that can be disbanded, and money-making enterprises that can fail. What does that sound like? What's going on today? There's, there's, every bit of this is going on today. You know, the, the, uh, there are treaties that are being broken left and right, promises are ignored, our, our traditions are going down the tubes. There's all kinds of organizations just falling away. And money-making enterprises that can fail. I mean, how many of you have been following the Chinese Evergrande uh, mess? The biggest, biggest real estate company in China, I think it is, and they're, they're going under. They've missed two, uh, two of their loan payments, two of their interest payments on their loan so far, and, and the Chinese government says, we're not going to bail you out. So we'll have to see what happens with that. But if, if you look at that, you can see the, those same things going on. And what, what Warren Wiersbe says is that pieces of the Roman Empire ha are still around and will still be around till the end of this age. And that's, that's what this is referring to. That's what this prophecy is referring to. And the stone is a frequent image in Scripture of Messiah, of Christ. Uh, Isaiah 8, verse 14 says, He will keep you safe, but, in Is but to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. So, so again, you know, you have God trying to get people to, to come back to him, and he's very patient, very patient, very patient, and, you know, all of a sudden it's time for judgment. You know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem did fall uh, eventually to the point where it was, it was utterly destroyed uh, after, I think, just before the fall of the Roman Empire, if I remember right. Christ will establish his kingdom over all the earth whenever, when the final remains of these kingdoms are destroyed. Now, go back to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you're King Nebuchadnezzar and you hear all this. Nebuchadnezzar falls at Daniel's feet and praises God. Don't forget, Daniel knew what the dream was when nobody else did. So that... That gave him authority, right? If, if you have a dream and you don't tell anybody and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I know what your dream is and tells you what it is and it's right, what do you think? 
God must have given them that interpretation. So he praises God. He gives Daniel promotion. And Daniel requested his three friends to get a promotion. So they get put in charge of the affairs of the whole province of Babylon. And Daniel gets to stay at the castle as an advisor to the king. So that, that ends that little vignette. The, the next one that we see, Nebuchadnezzar is building a 90-foot statue of himself made out of what? Gold. Now, the historians say there probably wasn't enough gold in the whole world at that time to build a 90-foot statue, so it was probably laminated over wood or something like that, kind of like what they did in the temple when they did the, the uh, hammered gold over the wood. Um, but he builds it on the plain of Dura, <laughs> and, and historians think it's possible that he was influenced by Daniel's dream because he was still full of pride because of all of his conquests. And he was also fear in fear for himself and for his kingdom. He wanted to make sure that his people were loyal and that there would be no rebellion. So he puts his statue up and then he sends a message out to all his officials to come to the dedication. Then he makes a decree, Daniel 3, verses 4 to 6, says, Then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. That's, that's pretty uh, graphic. Um, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground and worship the king. What does that sound like? What we just get done doing here? That's worship. Obviously, you can worship the wrong thing, right? You worship, oh, I should call Jamie up and describe it for you. Worship is an awesome experience. I, I've, been, I've been on a worship band, worship team, probably for close to 30 years now in one form or another. And let me tell you, there, there's times when you're up here and you're doing praise and worship and you're watching the congregation and you can feel that wave start to break. Those are awesome times. I've been, on, I've been on the platform when, when you can't sing because God's presence is so thick up there. You just, you just forget the words. I've been in a situation where the entire worship team couldn't sing. You know, we just kind of stood there for 10 minutes while, while the congregation praised God. But you, worship and worship music can stir up a lot of emotions. And other things use that to get people excited. So Nebuchadnezzar was using it to get people stirred up and to worship him. And naturally, being a king, he threatened them and said, you know, if you don't, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. So it was more than a political dedication. It was what? It was a religious service, right? Wiersbe says, this assembly of worshipers helps us better understand the plight of people in today's world who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. They blindly follow the crowd 
and build their lives on the false and the futile, concerned only with survival, they'll do almost anything to escape danger and death, even to the point of selling themselves into slavery to men and the empty myths that they promote. Do you remember back when we did the study on Job? In Job 2, verse 4, Satan says to God, he says, Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to what? To save his life. So you have all these people, they're used to doing what the king told them to, so okay, we'll bow and worship the gold statue of the king. There were three guys in the crowd who kind of stood out. Everybody's on their face. These guys are standing up. Now, we, we all know who they were, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Uh, those were their Babylonian names. Now, that takes a lot of courage, right? It also takes knowing that God was in control. Isaiah 43 verses 1 to 2 say, But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed, ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. You think maybe those three guys were thinking about that, that, that scripture? I mean, they had the scrolls of Isaiah, I think, back then. What would have happened if they had bowed before the image? Well, first of all, they would have destroyed their witness to all these Babylonians, right? Kind of like, kind of like us when we don't stand up for anything, or when we go along with the crowd instead of saying, "Yeah, you know, I'm a Christian and I don't think that's right. I'm not going to do that." So that would have destroyed their image. And what else? What's what's one of the? I think it's the first commandment: "Thou, thou shalt have no." capital N, capital O, other gods before me. So here you have these three guys standing, everybody's kneeling. Now, you got these Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans, this always confused me because Chaldeans are Babylonians. And scripture kind of singles them out as Chaldeans. What, what I found out was that in this context, context it means those with a knowledge of the occult. So again, they were, they were part of these seers and magicians and, you know, quote, wise men that the king relied on. And they, they may have been the very same people that David kind of embarrassed, uh, David, Daniel kind of embarrassed when he gave the king the interpretation of the dreams. So when they saw these three other guys, Jewish people, they grabbed him and they took him before the king and they told the king they didn't bow down. Now, Nebuchadnezzar must have respected these guys because he gave them a second chance, right? And he, he you know, 
told them that they needed to bow down. Here's their response, Daniel 3, 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. And, and here's the part that always gets me. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So basically what they're saying is, we're not going to do this because God can save us. But even if God chooses not to save us, we're still not going to do it. So we all know how the story ends from here. Nebuchadnezzar throws a temper tantrum, has, them thrown, has the furnace made so hot that when they open it up, the guards get burned up, and they throw them in. And, you know, he looks in through the, through the peephole, and he sees four people, not three. But let's look at the end of this. Daniel 3, verses 28 to 30. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to re rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other god who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. What do we see today around us? People who, what, basically go along to get along, right? We see people doing things because, as our kids are so fond of telling us, everyone is doing it, mom and dad. You know, and really, for you new parents or people about to become parents, that's not true. Maybe one of their friends is doing it, but they're going to tell you everyone is doing it. Because you did it to your mom and dad, and I did it to my mom and dad, right? As we move closer to the end of the age, which, which we're doing, things are going to heat up for us. Pastor Jeff has been telling us all along, you know, what, what, what are you going to do when they tell you, you know, you need to do this or we're going to kill you? It takes a lot of grace and prayer and courage and faith to resist the temptation to bow down. Now, how many of you are here Wednesday night and heard Tiff Shuttlesworth uh, speak on, can, can you take the mark of the beast by mistake? You know, as an oopsie. And if you didn't hear him, his answer is no, you can't. Um, <laughs> but... A lot of this chapter of Daniel is echoed in Revelation 13 and 14. There's one day going to be a world leader, the beast, who will have an image of himself constructed and will demand that everyone worship him. The people who obey will be given a special mark on their forehead or hand, and this mark will be the passport for staying alive and doing business. Remember, anyone who doesn't take the mark is going to be martyred, killed. And anyone who does take the mark has absolutely zero chance of getting into heaven. So, like everyone else who's Pentecostal in the Assemblies of God, I pray that we're pre-trib, 
that we get out of here before the tri tribulation. And there's a lot, there's a lot of scriptural proof for that, which we don't have time to get into here, but I think Pastor will probably get into it when he does, does the rest of Revelation. Um, so on to chapter four. Now, Warren Wiersbe says this chapter is unique in the Bible because it's an official autobiographical document prepared by the king of Babylon and distributed throughout the kingdom. So the king wrote a proclamation about what, what happened here. And I kind of like to learn this, uh, to, uh, to title this Learning the Hard Way. Now, we think 20 or 30 years had elapsed since the fiery furnace episode, and the land was peaceful. Nebuchadnezzar was enjoying a time of peace and serenity, and all was well in the kingdom. So he was kind of strutting his stuff. His, you know, he felt he was the builder of Babylon the Great, the architect of its peace and prosperity, prosperity, he totally forgot about God, all the things that he had said. If you look, if you look back there on what we read this morning, the praise that he gave God, he forgot about that. And he was about to learn an important lesson. He has another dream. And this one terrifies him. So in Daniel 4, verses 10 to 18, it says, While I was lying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves, and it was loaded with, <clears throat> excuse me, it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, and the birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from the tree. Then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. The messenger shouted, cut down the tree and lop off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched in the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers, it is commanded by the holy ones, so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowest, lowliest of people. Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, if, if you read a little further, you're going to find out that this dream shocked even Daniel. He was visibly shaken by this dream. Um, and part of that was because over, over this time, he and the king had kind of become friends. Uh, they respected each other. They, they, were, they were friendly with each other. So he stops to think how to tactfully <laughs> give the king the bad news. He tells the king that the tree is him, and he interprets the dream. Verses 24 to 26 go on. This is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my lord, the king. You will be driven from human society, and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. 
You will eat grass like a cow, and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way, until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree left, were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. Now, because Daniel's concerned about the king, he pleads with him. In verse 27, he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. Okay. God is what? God is patient, right? I mean, look how long he's waited for all of us to come to Christ. <laughs> the problem with us and with Nebuchadnezzar is we forget. So, so the next scene that we have is Nebuchadnezzar is standing on his roof and he's got his chest out and he's got his thumbs under his suspenders. And he looks, and verse 30 says, as he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, wow. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. As soon as the words were out of his mouth, what happened? A voice comes down from heaven and Pretty much repeats the same stuff, right? And it happens instantly. Within the hour, it happens. He's, he's out of the palace. He's not king anymore. He's out with the, some of the historians say, out with the donkeys uh, in the field for seven years. H have you ever... <laughs> Have you ever been afraid that God's going to do something like that to you? You know, I have. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest, I have. You, you, do something, you do something wrong and, you know, you, you start to repent and ask God for forgiveness and you think, yeah, but what if he doesn't? Daniel 4, 34 to 36 says, After this time had passed... I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. So he's, he's a, out with his 10-inch with his long fingernails and his matted hair and his beard down to the ground. And as soon as he looked up to heaven, it says, My sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him or say to him, why, why, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now you have to remember, this is a proclamation that King Nebuchadnezzar wrote and sent out to all the people in Babylonia. Now, that's a lot of scriptures. I, I think there's some lessons here. The first one, and I think this is throughout Daniel, God is sovereign. And a person's wealth and power mean nothing 
You know, and that's not what we're taught in society today, but, but that's the truth. Their wealth and power mean absolutely nothing. God is patient. He gave, the, he gave Nebuchadnezzar a whole year to repent after Daniel gave him the interpretation of the dream, and he did it. God's word always comes true. There, there isn't a prophecy in Scripture that hasn't come true. What's, what's pastors say? The only thing we're waiting for is the trumpet. Repentance brings what? Yeah, restoration, deliverance. Now, the Bible doesn't say whether or not Nebuchadnezzar had a true conversion experience. History records him as the evil king. And, and his story ends in this chapter of Daniel. I mean, he's referred to a couple times later on in Daniel, but, but, but you don't really hear very much about him. Um, he wrestled with God's sovereignty all his life. If you, if you look at all the examples we did this morning, that, that's pride fighting with God. Because God is sovereign, he can do whatever he wants. Nebuchadnezzar said that. Our sinful hearts, what? We rebel at the thought of that, right? Charles Spurgeon says in his book, The New Park Street Pulpit, most men quarrel with this, the sovereignty of God. Mark this, though. The thing you complain of in God is the very thing that you love in yourselves. Okay, guys. And... and most girls, you all feel that you have a right to do with your own things and with your own as you please, right? We all like to be little sovereigns, but we need a spirit that bows down before God. And, and Nebuchadnezzar closed his proclamation with a word of warning. Verse 37 says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Yeah, I, this sounds like a conversion experience to me, but I, don't, but I don't know. I'm not a historian. I don't know what happened next. Now, I'm going to let you out a couple minutes early because that's the end of the sermon. I think we're going to pick up two weeks from now. We're going to go through a couple more chapters of Daniel because there's some, stuff that, there's some stuff that God's laid on my heart that I think we need to get through and that'll tie in with what Pastor Jeff's going to be teaching about. Um, so how lucky are you? We're going to study two books of prophecy in a couple of weeks, pastor's doing Revelation, I'll finish up Daniel. And if you, can, if you can stand hearing me preach through another sermon on Daniel, that's great. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. Uh, as confusing as it is sometimes and as, as hard as it is to understand, the more we pray about it, the more your spirit gives us the ability to see what you want us to see in it. And that can be very individual. And we thank you for that, Lord. Uh, we pray for all the, uh, all the people that need a touch from you, all the people that we heard about in Sunday school and that we've had on our list for so long. We pray for people on our 
on our cross here that we'd like to see saved. Lord, you, you do so much, and we thank you so little. Father, we just, we just bow before you this morning, and we thank you for everything that you do. We pray for your blessing during the week. We pray that we can go out and, and be what you want us to be, the salt and light of the earth, and do the things that you tell us to do, Lord. And give us wisdom so that we can understand more of your scripture. And again, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I didn't, I didn't give a call for salvation this morning, but I'm going to tell you what scares me, and that is that you don't want to go through the tribulation. Because either you're going to take the mark of the beast and you're going to go to hell, or you'll get saved and you'll be martyred. And it's not going to be an easy time. So if, if you're not saved, talk to somebody. Because I think every person that's here would be glad to help you with that, including myself. So you all can go now. Thanks for listening to me. Have a great week.